Good morning. Thank you so much, Ruth. And all that we've been singing has really blessed me and stirred my heart as I think about opening this passage that we've been uh, given this morning. Game of Thrones is full of unexpected events, and David has been taking us through many chapters that have seemed to spell disaster, uh, like chapter 7 last week when the siege in Samaria meant that food was uh, almost non-existent, uh, three months' wages for apparently a donkey's head and bird dung, and the king is in complete despair. And you can see tension and anxiety written all over the royal household as he tears his robes. This week, the news carried reports of another royal family and uh, you might have watched An African Journey, a royal family wrecked with anxiety. Megan, Duchess of Sussex, talked about her British friends who warned her against marrying Prince Harry because the tabloids would destroy her life. And she's obviously been shocked by this whole experience and said, I didn't get it. I just didn't understand what they were saying to me. And from that program, the royal couple are haunted by a legacy from a previous generation as the consequences live on. Two Kings 8 is another chapter brimming with the consequences of past decisions and deeds for good and for ill. But before we come to read it, here are a few of the people and the problems that play out in what we're about to read. The consequences live on, and every detail reveals God to us. We meet a, a woman from Schumann, from chapter 4, who returns having obeyed the prophet's warning to move away, but she discovers that her house and her land have been passed into the hands of somebody else. It's not what she deserved, and there's even echoes of Naboth's vineyard since it wasn't the first time that prime real estate had been forcibly acquired. And then there's Ben-Hadad, who instigated the siege of Samaria, who pops up again, though not in person and not for very long, as he sends his servant to Elisha to ask if he's going to recover from illness. He's the one who thought that the God of Israel was only the God of the hills and not the valleys. And way back in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was told to anoint Haziel as his successor, and we'll see that unfolding uh, this morning. And then the second half of the chapter is about two kings who ruled in Israel in the north and Judah, who both shared equally in the judgments that Elijah had predicted about Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And some of that story reaches its climax in the next chapter, chapter 9, about impending judgment on those two nations. But the greater prediction to King David also shapes events when it seemed like the writing was on the wall and all of that was promised in Second Samuel when the writer says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, that is David's, forever and ever. 
I'll be his father. He shall be my son. When he goes wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. And so that prediction plays out even in this chapter. The promise that David's descendants will sit on his throne overrides the almost inevitable fate that this dynasty would be wiped out. So let's, as we normally do, stand together for the reading of God's revealing word. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 to 19. And it'll be on the screen. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, go away with your family and stay for a while wherever you can because the Lord has decreed a famine in that land and it'll last seven years. The woman proceeded to do as the man of God said. She and her family went away and stayed in the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of the seven years, she came back to the land of the Philistines, from the land of the Philistines, and went to appeal to the king for her house and land. The king was talking to Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, and had said, tell me about all the great things Elisha had done. Just as Gehazi was telling the king about how Elisha had restored the dead to life, the woman whose son Elisha had brought back to life came to appeal to the king for her house and land. Gehazi said, this is the woman, my lord the king, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman about it, and she told him. Then he assigned an official to her case and said to him, give back everything that belonged to her, including all the income from her land, from the day that she left the country until now. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, take a gift with you and go and meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Haziel went to meet Elisha, taking with him a gift, 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in, stood before him and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, sent me to ask, will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, go and say to him, you will certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Haziel was embarrassed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Haziel. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You'll set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men, and with the sword, dash their little ones to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Haziel said, how could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Haziel left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, what did Elisha say to you? Haziel replied, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face so that he died. Then Haziel succeeded him as king. 
in the fifth year of Joram, son of Arab, Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king and reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Please be seated. There's so much going on in this chapter. That's not all of it, but uh, please do keep it open if you can, and uh, we'll dig into it together. There's two ways to listen to God's Word. We can either accept it as trustworthy and true, or we can doubt it and disregard it. I don't think anybody here will be known as publicly identifying with evil and choosing to defy God's Word. But the unmistakable message here is that whether you obey or walk the other way, God's Word is powerful and is guaranteed. This chapter calls us to consider the kindness and sternness of God as He reveals Himself. It's the same kindness and sternness that we experience as our Father treats us as His own children. And this is what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, providing you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. His point was to say, look at the hand of God behind both private and public challenges, private conversations with family, with business, with neighbors, with friends, or challenges about public affairs. Paul is saying, see the hand of God behind His kindness and sternness. What should we do? How should we live? Ruth has already reminded us of some of the events that have shaped our life publicly this week. The question on so many lips after legislation was passed that affects the protection of mothers, unborn children, and healthcare professionals is, what do we do now? Let's not be tempted to think that because public challenges persist that God's hand is not still working. Maybe through his sternness, he'll reveal himself to those who consign the Bible to an outdated past. So our challenge is to listen and to continue to tell a better story of what the value of life is. Or maybe it's in our private lives where he reveals himself as one who is full of compassion and kindness in the daily struggles of our own health, or family, or future. But whatever the circumstances, the call here is to consider more carefully the kindness and sternness of God, which is a great summary of Second Kings chapter 8. 
here's what's going on. In the first six verses, God's mercy is rich. And then in the next eight verses, God's word is alive. And finally, God's kingdom is unstoppable in the last half of the chapter. So we'll start with kindness. This little episode, it's a bit like the lost axe head in chapter six. It's not just a space filler, but it's another evidence of the grace in Elisha's life and ministry that reflects the grace of the Lord himself. And here is this woman who saw that grace in Elisha and added an extension onto her house for his use. And we know some of her story, but here's another element, another kindness. It started with a tip about the hard times that were about to come and advice about what to do. And she went to live in the land of the old enemy, the Philistines. And like all her earlier responses, she doesn't argue about it. The woman in verse two proceeded to do as the man of God said. And why does she get this help? Well, doesn't it go back to the care that she gave to Elisha? Simply because he was the Lord's servant. She recognized something in him and thought, this is what I'm gonna do. It's an Old Testament case of Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. If anyone gives a cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't miss little cups of water? And he grants kindness to this woman. Sometimes those Little unseen acts of kindness are what keep others on their feet. And Elisha's advice must have been the reassurance to her that the keeper of Israel had not forgotten her. The famine ends. She returns to ask the king for her land. And the king is busy asking Gehazi about the great things that Elisha had done. Don't forget, this isn't a chronological story. So Gehazi, who was consigned with leprosy, is probably an event that happened later than chapter 8. But while he's in mid-sentence about this Shumanite woman and her dead son, there must have been jaws hitting the floor when in comes this very woman and her son crying out to the king about her house and her land. I got an email this week from Holly Tagley, who leads the International Student Work Ministry in Ireland. Her 10-year-old laptop was dying, and she and her husband had been praying about how to save money for a new one, but she had said nothing to anybody. And then two weeks ago, a friend gave her a very generous gift, saying, we know where to give this to you to meet a particular need. We have no idea it is, what it is, but we believe the Lord knows and they were blown away by the Lord's kindness. And they proceeded to get an amazing laptop in Curry's sale in their clearance items that was just perfect for their needs. A few days later, they were wondering about how they could pray for a Microsoft package. When the following message came from Mark Ellis of CUI, 
As a charity, we now have free copies of Microsoft Office available for anyone. If you need a copy, let me know. Consider the kindness of God. It was clear the king had been blown away by the testimony of God's power. So he gave her more than she was asking for. But sadly, his interest, a bit like that of King Herod in John the Baptist, was an interest in a good story. Rather than responding in obedience to the truth, there seems to be a huge gulf between being charmed by the truth and being converted to the truth. So what's our experience? What's our response? How do we respond to the truth? Like the woman who did as the man of God said, or like the king who was curious. He wanted to hear some good stories, but he was unchanged. The link between this first episode and the second, when Elijah goes all the way up to Damascus, is about restoration. The word is used three times in verse 5, and it's repeated again in this section four times. There's lots of questions about this incident, most of them I don't know answers to. What's taking Elisha to Damascus that had laid siege to Israel just in the previous chapter? Why is he presented with 40 camels worth of gifts? That's some preaching fee. But the unusual response to the question, will Ben-Hadad be restored, was, well, you tell him, you'll certainly recover. Nevertheless, the Lord has revealed to me he will in fact die. What's going on? Is Elisha being dishonest with the king saying he will get better, but something else is going to intervene? No, he sees Haziel as the one who is soon to be king, fulfilling what Elijah had been told that three people should be anointed to scourge unfaithful Israel. Elisha was the first, and here stood the second. Restoration has been the common theme so far in this chapter, but grace is in verses 1 to 6, and judgment in verses 7 to 15 are all part of the same message. So consider the kindness and sternness of God. However you read this passage, and there's lots of different ways of reading it, the upshot is, he'll die, you'll be king. So look what happens next in verse 11. Elisha seems to stare Hazel down and then he breaks down and weeps. We'll follow the story about Hazel and then come back to Elisha's tears, but he asks Elisha, why is he so upset? And because, verse 12, I know the harm that you will do to the Israelites, you'll set fire to their fortified places kill the young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women. 
all the awful atrocities of war. But Haziel is both confused and excited. He's not horrified by the prospect of violence. He's just wondering how somebody in such a lowly position as him could do such great deeds. And it's the same great deeds, the same word that Gehazi had used to describe Elisha's feats. And the reason, according to Elisha, is the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. Here's another response to the word of God. I don't get it. How can such a thing be possible? Megan's not the only person who hears something about human depravity and struggles to believe it. It's possible that while hearing God's word about sin and judgment, we choose to believe our own hearts. Really? How could I do such a thing? God's word is powerful. I wonder, did you see Dorothea's update this week? Here's the gist of one story from a recent conference that she was at, and I've removed some of the specifics. The leader of a largely unreached village recently came across some scripture in his own language, probably on a mobile phone app or perhaps on a website. He was so impressed by what he read that not only did he decide to become a follower of Jesus himself, but now he wants everyone in the village to follow Jesus too. Pray for this village, which may well face serious persecution now, and also for a similar engagement with Scripture in other language groups where the church is yet to be established. God's word is powerful. But what about these tears? We sang a few moments ago, there's strength in the sorrow, there's beauty in tears. And while Haziel is off rushing to assist this prophetic vision, Elisha is depressed. He knows there must be a Haziel as God's instrument to deal with faithless people. But for Elisha, it's both necessary and sad His tears are the tears, the tears of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in Luke 19 saying, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And here's a question for us this Sunday after this week. How do we speak judgment without being judgmental? How do we speak judgment without being judgmental? It's with tears. As we cry out about atrocities such as the disposal of unborn children. It's with tears that say human trafficking of vulnerable Vietnamese people will not be left without judgment. 
And here is God, who delights to show kindness, but who will also mingle tears with his sternness. God's mercy is rich. His word is alive, and his kingdom is unstoppable. We have relatives living in New Zealand since the late 19th century. Many distant cousins have come, traveled from there to Northern Ireland to visit. But today, on the 27th of October, my brother is the first person from our family to arrive there in Auckland to a, a nation in mourning. They're wearing black, obvious reasons. But he plans to meet the Daras in North Island. And his preparation last Monday, we were looking at an incomplete family tree that we had and discovered more about ourselves than uh, we realized. And he's curious as he arrives and meets some of our distant cousins, cousins to see what is reflected in the New Zealand branch of the Dara genes. There might be some similarities. It's clearly not rugby prowess. But in chapter 8, this chapter finishes with two kings who mark another shift in direction. And the reason is quite clear. They share bloodlines that go back three generations through Ahab to Omri. And most of the focus in Second Kings so far has been on the northern kingdom. But Judah's news here is that the successor to Jehoshaphat is taking his policy decisions from Israel. Verse 18 says, He followed the way of all the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Why would somebody walk into a marriage when hopefully his friends were shouting in his ear, nice girl, but the marriage will destroy your life? And these brief reports about Jehoram, followed by his son Ahaziah, are about the breakup of the influence of Judah as Edom asserts its right for self-determination. And despite rallying the troops and his chariots, in a little effort to bring them back, they just managed to escape. And it's not long before another city follows. And we don't have time to go into all the details of that. But the battle lines then suddenly shift back to the north as Haziel, this mere dog, begins to live up to his reputation of being a rod that's going to strike Israel. And that doesn't end well. And the final verse of this chapter sets the stage for trouble that's been predicted for a long time. Everything looks grim. But however foolish these kings are, there is a light that the Lord keeps. And this is where we're going to finish this morning. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. The promise to David overrides the trouble that these kings are getting into. His kingdom is unstoppable. 
His word is powerful. And it's pointing through this present darkness, which will not overcome it. Is that something that you can hold on to? Whatever the public or private chaos that you face today. Psalm 132 was a song for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. We can imagine people heading to a city where they knew all about the possible destruction of their own people. And here's their prayer. For the sake of your servant, David, do not reject the king you've anointed. The Lord swore an oath to David with a promise he will never take back. I will place one of your descendants on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. Here I will increase the power of David. My anointed one will be a light for my people. So are we tempted to see troubling clouds as a cause for giving up? Or maybe we're tempted to see tough times as God's anger because of some sin. This morning as we consider the kindness and sternness of God, let's hold on to the fact that he's able to use every mad move, whether at government or family level, to show that nothing lies beyond his control. His mercy is rich. His word is alive. And his kingdom is unstoppable.